This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Ryan Thomas Skinner. He is the author of the new book, Afro-Sweden, Becoming Black in a Colorblind Country, published in Minneapolis by University of Minnesota Press 2022. Ryan is Associate Professor in the School of Music and in the Department of African American and African Studies at Ohio State University. Ryan, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. No, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that inspired the scholarship you'd later engage in as an adult? Yeah, uh, very much so. I, I grew up in uh, Minnesota. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that's an identity that is uh, very close to me uh, is a, a sort of primary pass identity. I'm I'm a Minnesotan. Uh, I grew up outside of Minneapolis, um, and it was in Minnesota in those spaces that I, I I first encountered Sweden or or Swedishness as a as a as a as a as a cultural identity. Um, we have a, a pretty significant historic population of of uh, of uh, of Swedes in Minnesota, going back to the 19th century and onward. Um, I heard my first uh, Swedish uh, language in Minnesota. I sang my first Swedish songs in Minnesota. I was part of a, a, a performance of Pippi Longstocking, where I got to meet Astrid Lindgren herself. Uh, Minnesota wow. being. Minneapolis being very well known for its theater, I was a, I was a theater kid, and I, I learned phonetically a, a, a Swedish folk song in that in that play. Um, I ate lutefisk um, uh, with uh, you know a good friend of mine whose family was you know two generations removed from Norway. So I had a lot of contact with Scandinavia growing up, but it was kind of you know an abstract contact, and it was also something that growing up in Minnesota, uh, one took sort of for granted as a, as a very Scandinavian uh, state. Um, I didn't go too far from home to go to college. I went to Carleton College, uh, south of the Twin Cities, and I met my wife there. And uh, my wife is Swedish. Um, 
so my 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 encounter with Sweden deepened uh, through through her. Um, I also had uh, some formative experiences in college that brought me close to to Africa and African studies, uh, and that's important. So two really important people in my life are my wife and and a mentor at Carleton College, Sharif Keita. And from Sharif. Actually, parenthetically, uh, I met my wife in a course taught by this professor, uh, who is a professor of Francophone language and literature um, at, at Carleton College. And it was through Sharif Keita that I came into contact with uh, uh, West African literature, West African art, West African history. Uh, and he spent um, a year abroad in Mali, uh, in West Africa, or rather a semester abroad. And then I would later um, add another year to that as a Fulbright scholar. So Sharif set me on a path toward Africa and my wife set me on a path toward Sweden. Um, and eventually those two paths came together uh, as I got to know the, the African community in Sweden after my wife and I had moved there about 21 years ago. I'll pause there. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Yeah. Um, well, I can, I can, I'll, I'll answer that by by picking up on on where that story leaves leaves off. Um, I twenty one years ago, um, moving to Sweden, having lived in Africa, um, and Sweden still being a, a pretty new place to me. Um, I was getting to know uh, Sweden and Swedish society at the same time. Uh, that I became um, acquainted with and affiliated with local West African communities. So I, at the same time that I'm that I'm discovering the society and learning its language and 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 um, becoming acquainted with you know the its its everyday um, uh, habits and 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 uh, uh, you know the way things work in the workplace. I was a school teacher teaching French and English at the time. Uh, I was also getting to know sort of its multicultural uh, environment and milieu through um, my encounters with these, with these communities um, were for the most part, uh, first generation uh, immigrants to, uh, to Sweden, living in places like Stockholm and performing um, in, in most cases uh, as, as, uh, as dancers, as, as percussionists, as musicians. And I myself uh, am a musician and I got, became involved with those uh, groups um, in, in, the, in, that, in those communities as a musician. Um, as someone who had some musical skills from West Africa, as someone who spoke a West African language, um, and so those those two those two experiences uh, combined um, in in that moment, and I began to think about what it would mean to continue my education um, beyond uh, my undergraduate training into graduate school, and what kind of what kind of work that would be, and that encounter with with Sweden these communities uh, began to sort of allow me to generate a project uh, that dealt with, you know, issues of um, immigration, issues of integration, issues of perceptions of, of cultural difference. Uh, more often than not, these, these, these artists that I was working with um, were presented as, as exotic and African and, and not Swedish, uh, despite the fact that they were living and working in Sweden. So that dynamic interested me um, and I began to sort of, in a very simple but 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 emergent and nascent way, develop a project that I what that I that I applied to graduate school with. Now, when I got into graduate school, uh, my advisor, and this is taking me back to the United States and into New York, uh, I went to Columbia University, warned me that the discipline of ethnomusicology, the anthropology of music, was really not quite in a place uh, that would accept a project like that. He didn't think I was going to get a job in ethnomusicology. 
if I did a, a project rooted in, in Sweden um, that, that addressed the African diaspora. He thought that I would be more employable um, and more, I would look more like an ethnomusicologist if I went back to Africa and pursued a project that was rooted in Mali. And, and I and I did. And so his his perspective, I, I'll just say this, was 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 born of, of a kind of critical awareness of the field at, at the time, uh, which did, I think still did maintain uh, a, 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 an emphasis on uh, on difference, on cultural difference, on non-Western difference, perhaps even parenthetically exotic difference. Uh, and so I turned away from that project at that time and turned back to Africa. I went back to Mali and developed work that would result in my first book. Um, Af uh, uh, Bamako Sounds, The Afropolitan Ethics of Malian Music, uh, which is a post-colonial study of popular music culture in Mali. Uh, and then when that book project kind of, uh, you know, that dissertation became a book and, and I, I, I was uh, employed at the Ohio State University, I returned, you know, 10 years later to this work. Um, and when I returned to this work, uh, so much had changed. Uh, many of the same people were there, and I, my, my initial encounters with the African communities in Sweden were with the same people um, that I had known and worked with previously. Um, but I was also encountering a younger generation that was articulating their experience as people of African descent in Sweden in strikingly, strikingly different ways. Um, as Africans in Sweden, um, but also as black people in Sweden. So uh, a discourse that foregrounded a racial consciousness uh, in the public sphere um, and using terms like Afro-Swedish, Afro-Svensk, Afrikaans-Svensk, African-Swedish that I hadn't heard before. It's not that they didn't exist as terms, but they weren't part of my uh, of my world 20 years ago, um, but they were much more part of Swedish public discourse. You know, when I began to sort of enter back into this environment in 2012-2013. So the impulse for this book is that re-encounter with these communities of African descent via uh, uh, a, a new set of voices articulating on different terms what it means to be uh, Black and Swedish, what it means to be African, African and Swedish, um, and mobilizing that discourse, again, through the performing and visual arts. So I found myself back uh, as an observer, as an interpreter, as a thinker um, in relation to uh, works of visual culture and theater and dance and music. Um, and uh, it was quite inspiring. So what what inspired me to write this book is, is that encounter with this broad set of, of what I'm calling public culture, expressive culture in the public sphere. Um, among people of African African descent who are really staking a claim to their um, uh, multiply conscious uh, African Swedish, but also you know women um, and artists and activists sense of self in this society, and their story um, is really at the heart of this book. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance? The book is uh, it is divided into six chapters, and in each of those. Six chapters are divided into three, um, three bits, and um, they're under two headings. Um, part one is uh, called remembering, and part two is renaissance. And these are the way I think of, you know, the book. These are the two key words. These are the two major thematic moments uh, in the text, and they also represent two ways for me. And I hope this is something that the reader um, takes away as well of thinking about diaspora and the African and Black diaspora specifically, um, that is two modes of diasporic um, being and becoming in the world. So for me, remembering uh, is the way in which uh, people 
uh, recollect the past in order to constitute a sense of community. Um, and so uh, Ngugi Wationgo um, uses the, the term often with a hyphen, remembering. So the, the, the kind of recollection of the past to literally bring community back together, to remember a community. And, and Wationgo emphasizes um, a, another related word to sort of drive that point home, which is the ways in which slavery and colonialism dismembered African societies. So remembering is sort of an existentially imperative effort to use to draw on the past in order to constitute community in the present. Um, and then the second theme, uh, Renaissance, is the way in which those, those historically constituted or reconstituted communities express themselves um, in the present, but also point towards uh, diasporic futures. Um, uh, and, and, you know, Renaissance uh, brings us also into sort of communion with, uh, with other places and times that are, are, are uh, qualified by that term. And uh, for me, that shouldn't take us uh, to, say, you know, uh, the, the Dutch or Italian Renaissance, uh, but rather take us to an Africanist lineage of, of those terms. So I want people to think about Harlem and I want to think about uh, people to think about the um, Black Arts Movement in Chicago. I want people to think about the African re Renaissance uh, in, in Southern Africa and its emergence from white supremacy and apartheid. I want people to think about uh, the African Renaissance and its emergence from colonialism in the 1960s. Um, so these are the times and these are the places that I want to invoke uh, with that term to suggest that what's happening in Sweden is also part of a periodic instantiation of, of a cultural, um, uh, of cultural rejuvenation, vitality, and what Hannah Arendt calls uh, natality, um, in which, you know, cultural expressions make communities um, uh, critically self-aware. Uh, and, and for me, uh, I, I observe that by, by attending to the arts. In conducting this research, what friendships and relationships did you cultivate? Can you share some examples? How did interviewees respond to your request for a conversation? What were the barriers for them in opening up? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. So the the research for this book took part primarily over the course of about six years, uh, so roughly from 2013 to 2019. Um, Although, as I mentioned, I have a, I have a longer history with Sweden that goes back to um, the early 2000s um, uh, when I lived there for two years, and certainly uh, many of the relationships I established during the, those times remained uh, quite quite potent and 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 powerful for me coming back. Uh, as I as I um, began to come back to Sweden, and then for a year between 2015 and 16, lived there uh, with my family. Um, and so I have these longer term relationships with people, all kinds of people who have impacted um, the, the work, people who were active and involved with me, for example, in, in producing um, uh, 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 music culture with, 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 with African collaborators in Stockholm going back 20 years, people I worked with at the schools. Um, and by the way, the school where I worked um, as a French and English teacher 20 years ago, uh, I was presented, this school was presented to me as an immigrant school uh, in, in, in scare quotes. And, and, and by that, uh, it was meant that these were, you know, principally uh, non-Swedes, non-Swedish people attend, attending this school. So it was very early on also that through the, those experiences and wrestling with the, what, what that meant with my colleagues at that school, that I came into contact with these, these discourses of uh, racial and ethnic difference. So m relationships with colleagues going back to that era, but then, um, returning uh, 10 years later and encountering a, a, you know, a new community. Many of these people uh, were of the age of the middle school students I was teaching uh, back in 2001. So they're now in their 30s uh, and expressing their 
relationship to Sweden as people of African descent in striking different ways, as I said. And it took time to um, establish those relationships, I think, in, in, in meaningful and trusting ways. However, I will say this, that uh, in all cases, um, people were very interested in talking to me. Uh, people were very interested in sharing their stories. At this point in 2012, 2013, when I'm returning to the project, this is a moment um, where there is a lot of public discourse around race, around racism, and, and, and specifically around Afro-Swedish, um, uh, the conditions of Afro-Swedish life uh, in Sweden. Uh, and so I encountered a number of people through public forums, through um, roundtables and lectures and performances. Um, so generally speaking, those contacts were made after I had uh, encountered their their ideas and 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 their perspectives uh, in these public forums. And many of those in interviews began as kind of following up. So me asking questions to understand better um, some of the issues that were being raised in those forums. And then over time, uh, getting to know some of those folks uh, better through, uh, you know, encounters uh, uh, either informal or formal uh, conversations or formal interviews that over time, uh, I think allowed me to, um, I hope, understand their concerns um, and represent their perspectives in, 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 um, in, in fair uh, and, and accurate ways in the book. Why have so few scholars approached the topic of Black history in Sweden before? What explains this silence? Yeah. Um, I, so I, I'll begin by saying that it, uh, and this is not the question, but it's, it is few, but not, not absence. Um, and uh, I, I am, I am profoundly indebted to the scholars that precede me in, 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 in asking these kinds of questions and pursuing this work. Um, and I'm thinking of people like Lena Sawyer, um, uh, whose uh, whose whose work is uh, you know twenty years deep at this point, uh, interrogating uh, issues of of race and African diaspora, and uh, and and normative whiteness in Sweden. Um, I'm thinking of uh, scholars like Michael McEachrane, whose work is as deep, um, uh, introducing critical lenses like postcolonial theory uh, to Sweden. Um, bringing a critical race studies perspective uh, to uh, the study of Swedish politics and society. Um, these are folks, just to name two, who have you know trailblazed and made 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 this work possible, and they're also folks who are interrogating those histories uh, in meaningful ways, going back you know some twenty or more years. So there are there is a um, there is a there is a literature there, um, uh, and 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 there is good work um, that, that populates that bibliography. Um, that said, there is nonetheless a paucity of, of studies, um, especially studies that have received a, a you know, wide distribution, um, published works, monographs um, that, that take seriously uh, Black life and Black history uh, in Sweden. Why is that? Um, I think because those people and those histories have not again, in sort of a normative sense, been considered to be uh, relevant to Swedish history uh, or, or, or a part of Swedish history. Um, there have been uh, uh, events uh, in the course of, of Swedish history that have been actively uh, suppressed, ignored, or obscured. Uh, for example, Sweden's participation in the transatlantic slave trade or its involvement in African colonialism. Um, and these are uncomfortable histories. These are histories that that challenge uh, some of the more celebratory notions of of uh, Swedish society and its history. For example, 
uh, a notion or narrative that would present Sweden as not merely anti-racist, um, that is a society that that uh, that is uh, broadly speaking critical of racism, but also anti-racist, that in some sense there's never been racism uh, or races for that matter in, in Sweden. So uh, the histories that, that, that are excavated by attending to Black and African life in, in Sweden um, bring us into an, an, an uncomfortable encounter with, with normative narratives of, of Swedish society. And I think um, that's probably most of the reason why, why these, these, these stories and these histories have not been told. Um, and it is an act of, I, I think, you know, uh, uh, academic, uh, but also public intellectual bravery uh, to, uh, for, you know, the scholars uh, like those I, I've mentioned, but, but many others as well to in, in interrogate those histories and ask tough questions about Swedish society and its history uh, in ways that include actively uh, people of African descent. I'll just name one really kind of extraordinary example in the present, which is a current uh, exhibition that has been going on for a few years now, now called uh, Africa Paul Gore or Ongoing Africa at the Ethnographic Museum. And that's led by uh, uh, a team of, of curators um, and museum ethnographers, uh, among them Michael Barrett, who's uh, an Afro-Swedish um, uh, anthropologist uh, who works at that, uh, at that institution. Um, and they've brought forward um, many of the artifacts that they have in their holdings from Africa. Many of those artifacts have direct uh, relationships to colonialism insofar as they were taken by missionaries, for example, uh, and brought back to Sweden. So bringing out those collections, but interpreting them in ways that actively involves an African presence in contemporary Sweden. So bringing, uh, bringing folks from the diaspora to, for example, um, illustrate um, uh, in, uh, uh, figures in, in Afro-Swedish history uh, and present them, uh, bringing uh, people, uh, representatives from the diaspora to converse with those objects, to talk about the relationship to these, these, these holdings uh, and reinterpret them, reimagine them in ways that, that centers uh, an African presence. Uh, in other words, to not merely present their collections in ways that reaffirms or reinscribes a historically colonial relationship to Africa, but attempts to meaningfully decolonize the, those holdings by involving and implicating uh, an African presence historically and in a contemporary sense uh, in their in their representation. What does your book teach us about collective memory? What does the book teach us about collective memory? I, I'll, I'll go back to that key word, uh, remembering, and that um, for memory to be collective, uh, requires uh, a certain um, amount of intentional uh, cultural labor um, and, and social work. Um, so for me, remembering is not merely a kind of cognitive process. It's actually it's actually a cultural activity. It's a practice. Uh, and so collective memory for me uh, is is that effort to um, return to the past uh, through uh, a critical engagement with the archive as I was describing in the context of the Ethnographic Museum, uh, through storytelling and, and oral history, uh, talking about uh, the past in, in ways that kind of connects generational histories to each other. Um, and uh, an, uh, an example from my book that, that uh, presents yet another mode of historical memorialization and collective memory is uh, movement through space. There's a chapter that, that involves principally a, a method of walking with people uh, through their hometowns, through uh, historic uh, uh, areas in, in Stockholm, Gamlestad, Old Town, to um, 
recollect, to remember, to explore the collective memory of people of African descent through their encounters with these spaces that they call in some fundamental sense home, um, but from which uh, we are often not offered a perspective that includes them uh, in, their, in, their, in their intimate encounters with these places over time. So uh, for me, collective memory is in short a practice. Uh, it is a practice that is mobilized in various ways. And those ways of recollecting the past have have also represented methods that I've employed uh, in in the book. So oral history, uh, archival, um, uh, ingathering and interpretation, uh, and then um, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, tour, a walking tour of um, of intimate space uh, among people of African descent in Sweden. How do black persons in Sweden relate to the histories of other minority groups in the country? What are their perceptions of Sweden's Jewish, Muslim, Middle Eastern, and Roma communities? What forms, if any, of solidarity manifest? Yeah, um, I would say this is an interesting question. Um, so I'm going to start by 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 approaching this question from uh, a similar lens that I'm applying to the the African and Black communities. This lens of of remembering and Renaissance. These lenses um, in this moment. Uh, at the same time that we're seeing um, this this recollection of the past and this renaissance of public culture among among Afro Swedes, um, we're also seeing similar kinds of efforts among, uh, say, uh, Jewish Swedish people. And I'm thinking of a of a, of a recent book uh, that came that came out by uh, Johanna Rubin Dränger, uh, titled "Ihog Komos Liv, or "Remember Us to Life." It's a graphic novel that was released this year. Uh, a really rich, very thick uh, compendium of images and text that uh, recollects the 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 family history of the of the author uh, going back several generations. Um, uh, in Sweden, throughout Scandinavia and Europe, uh, to talk about um, a fraught but but rich Jewish history, um, and that that to me, you know, remember us to life was such a wonderful illustration, literally, of of the two concepts that I that I work with in the text vis-a-vis -vis the African and, and, and Black populations in Sweden, uh, but here to 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 think about the Jewish diaspora, um, and that artwork again is that sign of a, of a kind of renaissance cultural cultural affirmation. Right at the same time that it, that it's doing the work of remembrance, um, a similar text uh, that that uh, that connects to the uh, indigenous populations of Sweden is Mats Jonsson's uh, book *Narvivar uh, Sommer*, *When We Were Sami*, uh, also a graphic novel. Interestingly enough, um, that that recollects the author's um, uh, attempts at. Um, uh, uh, relearning, uh, discovering uh, a Sami heritage that has been generationally denied to him, um, uh, a, a, a genealogy that was was in many ways disrupted and, and, and cut off by uh, Swedish colonialism. Uh, and, and and so this this is the author's attempt to reconnect with that indigenous uh, mode of identification, that indigenous indigenous identity uh, as, a, as a person of Sami heritage. So I begin by answering that question by saying there is in this moment, uh, a very interesting kind of diasporic um, uh, turn toward remembering and, and Renaissance's modes of community formation across multiple communities, um, minority communities uh, in Sweden. But you're asking about connections. Um, I think some of those connections are actually quite deep uh, and, and robust. Um, uh, for a long time, Swedish civil society was replete with organized organizations like the Anti-Racist anti Academy uh, and other anti-racist organizations that were that focused on precisely the, the kinds of 
um, you know, anti-Black, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic uh, uh, forms of uh, racism that different communities faced and thinking about them, you know, as a, as a, as a whole and not, not separately. Um, so I, I, I think those two things are, are true. I think there, there's, there, there's, there, there's a, um, a sense of uh, minority community anti-racist solidarity that has fairly deep roots in Sweden's progressive, I would say, leftist culture, um, and and a current resurgence of um, of artful remembrance um, that that brings depth and perspective. Uh, to those communities in the present, and I, you know, I, I, I think of these texts as texts that I, I read at at a certain kind of intersection. I think they're they're telling us an interesting story about cultural difference um, and and heterogeneity in a society that has for so long presented itself as as, as homogenous and normatively white. How does your book advance our understanding of anti-blackness? Yeah, advance our understanding of anti-blackness. Um, I I would hope that it contributes. Um, advance is is a is a loaded term. I'm I'm really very much in dialogue with with a with a literature um, on 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 this topic. Um, uh, it contributes to an ongoing discussion of um, of uh, you know colorblind what's been called colorblind. Uh, racism. It contributes to an ongoing discussion of uh, of anti-black racism in Sweden. Specifically, I mentioned scholars like uh, Lena Sawyer and Michael McKeekran. I would add to that list uh, scholars like like Ilva Habel, uh, for example, a media studies scholar who is who has written uh, powerfully about representations, racial representation uh, in film and media. Um, I see myself contributing to that to that work. I think for for people who are coming to this book without much knowledge of Sweden, however, uh, what I might be contributing specifically is an awareness that anti-Blackness uh, or racism, uh, you know, uh, uh, that people of African descent specifically confront in everyday life and systemically is something that exists in Sweden. Um, and so for people not familiar with that literature to which I hope I'm contributing in meaningful ways, I think what this book offers is a perspective that says Black people exist in Sweden, people of African descent exist in fairly sizable numbers. Um, uh, you know, estimates that I present in the book range anywhere from 350 to 500,000 people in a country of 10 million people. That's a fairly sizable number uh, in a country that encompasses a non-white population of about 20%, a fifth of its population. Um, but these are these are people who are um, very often, um, particularly from an American vantage, written out of our of our public consciousness uh, of, of of Sweden. Uh, so, for example, I begin the book with uh, a Trevor Noah sketch, and you know Trevor Noah is a is a pro progressive South African uh, comedian living in America and hosting The Daily Show, and he tells a joke that the butt of which is essentially that there are no black people in Sweden. Um, and so what does my my book contribute to the studies of anti-blackness? It's an awareness that of, of, a, of a community that is facing anti-black racism or Afrophobia, as it's called in Sweden, and to, I hope, in a, in a rigorous and and um, uh, and comprehensive way in, in dialogue with the relevant literature, but, but also through a, a variety of ethnographic case studies, illustrate the nature of, of that um, uh, Afrophobia or anti-black racism. Um, I will say that racism is an important theme of the book, but it, it is not ethnographically the most important. Um, ethnographically, I'm also interested and perhaps more interested in, um, in um, 
not necessarily moving beyond anti-blackness, but to think in relationship to those experiences of how these communities are constructively, creatively, uh, affirmatively identifying themselves uh, as a diaspora, as uh, as people of African descent, as black people um, in Sweden. So that's a perspective that I think I would want to add to, to my response to that question. So at the same time that I'm building on a literature and inviting readers to get to know Sweden a bit better, uh, I'm also asking people to get to know uh, these these African descended communities in ways that are not solely defined uh, by by the um, the negation of their of their of their lives, uh, but also by the affirmation of of their communities uh, as a diaspora. What are the different terms? used in the Swedish language to refer to Black persons. Which of these are considered demeaning or pejorative or disrespectful or derogatory and which are considered appropriate? Yeah. Um, well, the appropriate terms are, are are coming from the communities themselves. And, and that's that's an important sort of demographic intervention um, that, that, that um, uh, Sweden has, has yet to heed. Uh, that is, uh, listening to people about how they actually identify themselves as a meaningful as a meaningful sort of uh, um, uh, as a meaningful data set in establishing uh, you know communitarian diversity in the society. So um, currently, Swedish statistics in terms of um, in terms of difference only considers ethnic and national difference. So you you are either um, you either a, a a Swedish born person or you're a foreign born person. And if you're a foreign born person, that that foreignness might come from your mother or your father or both. Um, and it's tied statistically to a to a country of origin. So statistically, what we see um, in terms of differences is, is merely ethnic national difference. Um, and uh, that makes it very difficult, by the way, to even calculate what what sort of uh, a, a, you know black population looks like uh, in Sweden because there's no there's no category of race. Uh, there's nothing in Swedish statistics that 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 allows us to see how many people identify as Afro-Swedish, self-identify in those terms, for example. Um, so the the terms uh, come from the communities, and, and and what I'm trying to say here is. That 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 fact, I think, should be something that 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 Sweden as a society attends to and takes seriously. That these are terms of uh, of identification, which include Afro-Swedish, Svensk, Afrikaans Svensk, African Swedish, Svart, which is black, or in English, black. Um, they, these are these are terms that are, that are salient to the community uh, in, in the present. Um, that uh, I I would hope that people will take seriously. And these are you know again these are affirmative. Um, categories that, that are coming from the communities themselves. Uh, now, in terms of other uh, other terms um, that, that exist historically, um, you have terms like uh, morion, um, which is related to the term more, uh, which has been used to historically identify kind of a wide swath of people, sometimes as specific to people um, of North African descent south of the Iberian Peninsula, but often more, more generally just simply to refer to people of color uh, and people of African descent specifically. And that's an older term, but it still appears, um, uh, you know, in, um, in the names of a public square. Um, uh, it is still out there in the world that, that you will, you know, a word that you will encounter uh, with uh, that refers to people of African descent. Uh, another term that I, I won't repeat out loud is the N-word um, that is uh, unfortunately still in, in, in many cases uh, a, a term that is 
is used, um, uh, not as often perhaps as it as it once was in in in, in recent history, uh, because there has been a, a great great amount of of, of critical, mainly Afro Swedish uh, uh, response to the everyday use of that term. But it's a term that would get used to refer to say uh, uh, you know a Swedish uh, popular Swedish confection, uh, what is now called a chocolate ball. Uh, coconut cream filling with a chocolate outside that was once called an end ball, for example, um, not too long ago, and maybe even you know to this day in some places. Um, and then using that n word to to refer um, to 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 black people in ways that might seem uh, innocent or or banal, um, you know, something that just we you know we people in Sweden just say and not necessarily delivered with any kind of ill intent, but that can have a, a strikingly um, insulting and even violent effect. Um, on Black people uh, and people of African descent more generally in Sweden. So those two terms are, are sort of antiquated, one of which is, 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 is particularly violent, I think, in its connotation and, uh, and still uh, in use in some quarters of Swedish society today. How does your book advance our understanding of diaspora? Yeah. Um, diaspora, again, I would go back to those two key words, I, I think um, uh, remembering and renaissance is ways in which I, I hope uh, people reading this book will uh, take a step sort of uh, beyond the immediacy of the case studies that deal specifically with with people of African descent in Sweden and think about those histories and experiences in relationship to uh, categories that I, I believe have uh, broader rele relevance to uh, the study and understanding of diaspora more generally. That is, um, and, I, and I should say even, you know, a step further, uh, remembering in Renaissance uh, in, 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 at their essence are, are, are not merely terms of, of, of diasporic uh, community formation, uh, but are, are, are pretty essentially human phenomena um, that we construct as human beings in the world. We construct our and develop a social sense of, of, of our of our of our collectivity um, and community uh, by recollecting the past, by 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 uh, by tracing genealogies, by drawing on 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 sort of ancestral history. Um, and we affirm our our presence as uh social formations as communities through the 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 public works that we leave behind through the stories we tell uh through the art we make and so i what i'm telling is i think a very human story but there's a certain urgency right there's a certain um there's a certain um uh there's a certain there's a certain unique relevance to the story of diaspora, because diasporas are, are communities of people, you know, historically dispersed that have that have that have some history of exile or displacement or trauma of some kind that has that has um, spread those communities out throughout through the world. So the 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 exigency, right, the immediacy, the need to recollect the past, to to um, tell the story of their community, and the need to um, to foster a language. Um, uh, a an art form, a, a cultural presence that affirms that community, I think is um, perhaps um, perhaps a way in which we might tell that human story in, through through the lens of a people who 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 highlight its 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 potency, right? So diasporas tell a human story uh, through the particular exigency of their of their uh, community project, um, and. So that's how I would respond to that question. I think the key words of the study are are, are directly implicated 
in that um, diasporic in inquiry. But I think diasporas also tell us through through a very powerful lens, a, a, a profoundly human story. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. How many Swedes of African descent are there presently? What are the statistics and demographics? What are the primary countries of origin? Yeah, um... So we, we talked a bit about the problem of statistical knowledge uh, in Sweden, you know, and by the way, I'm not I'm not far from alone um, or the first person uh, to have sort of wrestled with uh, the statistics Sweden databases um, before me, uh, Michael McKeekrain um, in his uh, book, uh, Afro Nordic Landscapes had had uh, had uh, presented uh, his efforts to determine uh a rough estimation of people of African descent in Sweden, um, going back to um, uh, you know 2013, 14. Uh, Tobias Hubinet, who's a sociologist and cultural theorist uh, uh, in in Sweden, has also published widely on on um, uh, the way uh, ethnic and racial difference is is modeled or excluded from st uh, Swedish uh, statistical databases. Um, and so again, you have. Uh, national origin as you, as your as your marker, and so we can look uh, kind of in a in a in a gross and crude way at the number of people of sub-Saharan African descent as a as an uh, as a way of thinking about um, you know Africanness in Sweden. Uh, we might look at the Caribbean. However, uh, in in many Caribbean countries, we're talking about multi-ethnic, multi-racial societies. Uh, the United States is another one of those. So those statistics are are never going to tell us the full story. And even in Africa. Uh, those those stories are are very very complicated. Does one include North Africa or does not one uh, include North Africa in an estimate of people of African descent? For example, um, uh, if you had statistical information that took uh, uh, racial modes of identification seriously, uh, that might come forward, but it doesn't currently, and that makes it hard to talk about statistically how many you know Afro Swedish people uh, are there in Sweden currently. Um, but if we look at the statistics and what we have, um, it is also clear that by by a wide majority, most people of African descent in Sweden today are coming from the Horn of Africa, and many of those people are um, fairly recently arrived in, in terms of their presence in, in Sweden, so from countries like Eritrea, uh, Ethiopia, uh, Somalia. Um, by a wide margin, these are these are the countries that that uh, that that populate Sweden in terms of or uh, African origins. But there are also uh, uh, large numbers of Southern Africans in Sweden, West Africans. The Gambian population is particularly for such a small country, uh, particularly sizable. Um, but there are people of African descent from all over the the African world in in Sweden. Um, and uh, some of that comes through in the statistics, and some of that is 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 less visible. What kinds of tensions exist between different generations of Afro-Swedes? Can you comment on the relationship between first and second generation Afro-Swedes? Yeah. What do the different first, second, and third generations of Afro-Swedes have in common in interacting with Swedish society? And what are the differences in the ways that they interact with Swedish society? And how has Swedish society evolved 
in relation to the different generations of Africans yeah, in yeah. Sweden. The question of generation, I do use that term uh, a bit in the book, but it's complicated. Uh, it kind of depends on what you mean. Um, so if I think with a scholar like Lena Sawyer, whose, whose name I've mentioned already, in a 2008 uh, essay, Engendering Race and Calls for Diasporic Community in Sweden, um, you know, she talks about, uh, in another work, I believe, um, uh, generations of uh, waves of uh, of immigration from 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 Africa and in, in, in the African world. So when she means, I believe, by by first and second generation are two distinct waves of 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 people um, who are you know arriving in and making home in in Sweden, say in the 1960s and 70s, but then a second wave or second generation uh, in the in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, and these these groups of people um, have have uh, uh, have different histories or coming from generally different places uh, in, in the African world uh, and tell us something generationally different about these societies. But many of them are still um, would be considered at least officially in Sweden, first generation immigrants uh, in Sweden. So uh, two waves uh, or two generations of populations, all sort of first generation immigrants, according to the, the according to, to Swedish uh, statistics. Um, uh, when I think about generation, I'm thinking uh, about the kinds of people I encountered in in 2013. Um, uh, people who uh, identify as as being of African descent, but might be, uh, according to Swedish statistics, uh, Swedish born. Um, uh, and so not appearing in terms of sort of that representation of of, of African descent uh, in the statistical data databases, maybe there are two generations, um, you know, removed from from a, a parent who may have uh, you know, immigrated to Sweden from somewhere else in the world, um, or maybe one generation removed. Uh, in which case they would appear, uh, I should say, that immigrant sort of status and identity is at least a, a, a generational inheritance um, uh, by one degree. Um, uh, but th those folks uh, that I came into contact with um, uh, are people born and raised in Sweden with a consciousness of a diasporic provenance uh, coming from a specific community, ethnic group, nation, um, through their through their parents and family, but who are also um, Swedish in every possible sense, um, except the the sense that is how people perceive them. Uh, in everyday life. People who born and raised in Sweden might have been put into remedial Swedish classes in school. Um, I, I, I parenthetically, as an anecdote, I encountered this as a middle school teacher in Sweden uh, when a, a young woman uh, raised in Sweden, Swedish, Swedish being one of two native languages for her, uh, was placed in remedial Swedish because a colleague told me that she didn't receive Swedish through her mother's milk. Um, that was a striking encounter with a very explicit form of biological racism uh, in, in Sweden. Uh, or people who encounter in a, in a relatively sort of banal everyday sense uh, the question, but where do you really come from? Uh, so for me, the generational shift here is toward a group of people who are um, uh, refusing uh, the stigma of immigration or the immigrant identity um, as a as a as a as a way of uh, uh, dismissing their their uh, their belonging to and presence in Sweden, uh, and this is the the generation of people that is actively cultivating the use in the public sphere of terms like Afro Swedish and African Swedish to communicate that sense of uh, of an African heritage, but also the sense of being racialized as black 
in society and combined with, articulated to uh, a, a, a Swedish sense of, of belonging that they refuse uh, to let society uh, take away from them. Uh, and so Afro-Swedish is a provocative, you know, mode of identification because it says, I deeply value, um, you know, my parental heritage, that history. Um, I'm acutely aware of racism in this society, and um, I am I am uh, I am a, I am an, an, an implicit um, uh, and uh, I'm an implicit part of this society, uh, and an integral part of this society, uh, and I'm not going anywhere. Uh, so that for me is a, a generational shift in discourse. Right, so I'm giving you a, a several kinds of senses of how we might think about generation. For me, it's a, it's a it's a generational shift in terms of uh, public culture and discourse, which is uh, markedly different, say, than what I was aware of uh, 20 years ago, uh, at a time when there were far fewer people of African descent in Sweden, and some of the more explicit forms of of, of public engagement through civil society uh, were, were were not quite as well developed at that time. Who have been the most outstanding voices of Black feminism in Sweden? Oh, there are many. Um, uh, there, 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 there are many. So I, you know, I've already mentioned the sort of a uh, a litany of scholars: um, uh, uh, Lena Sorier and Ilva Habel uh, are, are are notable uh, uh, Black Swedish uh, scholars doing 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 very important work. Um, I would uh, I would want to point to uh, politicians um, that I encountered in the course of my field work. Um, uh, people like Victoria Kavesa, uh, a Ugandan Swedish uh, woman who became uh, the the leader of the Feminist Initiative Party, uh, and who brought to that explicitly feminist political party uh, an explicitly uh, uh, an explicit perspective on 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 race and and, and anti blackness. So coupling. Um, uh, critiques of patriarchy with critiques of of of, uh, of white normativity uh, and anti-black racism specifically. I'm I'm thinking of uh, Alice Bakunke, who was the minister of culture and, and democracy during the course of of my field work, a Gambian Swedish uh, polit politician um, uh, who was also uh, very active in her engagement with uh, with Afro-Swedish civil society. Um, I'm thinking of public uh, intellectuals, people like Judith Kiros, uh, a writer um, uh, and and uh, editorialist in in, uh, in in the in the Swedish uh, press, um, but also more generally. Um, uh, I'm thinking of people like uh, Fana and Dow Norby, uh, who is uh, also a writer uh, who uh, created a social media space called uh, Svart Kvina, Black Woman, uh, a social media space that allowed Black women, African women, to in Sweden to express um, their their pride, their joy, their concerns, their their fears, their 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 experiences of harm. Uh, in society, in a form that felt that felt safe and 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 uh, and, and community oriented, and that that uh, that social media site became a book, also called Svartkvina. So you know, in literature, um, in poli in politics, uh, in the academy, um, there are so many uh, women, um, black women, who have contributed to the discourses that that uh, that interest me in this book. There is a, sp a special and singular moment that I that I talk about in the book in the in the chapter. Uh, on the uh, the art of Renaissance, chapter six, and that's Sinabusi, and she's a Gambian Swedish a singer, a vocalist, a diva, really kind of remarkable R and B and soul artist, um, who uh, who won uh, several awards in 2016 and appeared on stage at the Swedish Grammy Awards ceremony, and this is, um, I believe. Uh, 
I believe this this occurred either uh, you know a couple of weeks before or after the Beyonce Super Bowl performance, uh, and and there and there's some correspondence uh, with these two performances, but they're not directly related. Uh, Sinabusi's perform they were they were developed separately, but they tell a similar story. Sinabusi brought 130. Uh, black women dressed in black out onto stage with her on national television in the context of the Swedish Grammy Awards while she was singing a couple of her uh, most popular song, songs, Easy and Hard Time, uh, from her first uh, LP. And uh, these women were brought on, uh, out onto stage. They stood still, stoic, standing straight ahead. Um, and it was a um, it was a profound statement. Uh, it was a representational statement. It was Sinabu C saying, in my in my in my life thus far in Sweden, um, I have not grown up seeing people like me. So I'm going to bring you know my 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 sisters out onto stage on the stage to show Sweden that we exist. And uh, it was it was uh, you know artfully done. It was uh, it was a sort of creative tour de force and a profoundly impactful statement. Um, if you look up Sinabusi, uh, S-E-Y is her last name, uh, Swedish Grammy Awards 2016, uh, you can see this, uh, you know, play out on, on, on YouTube. It's, it's truly remarkable. It, um, uh, it, it is a profound act of, of Black feminist public culture. What is your book's contribution to ethnography? My book's contribution to ethnography, um, I think that ethnography is slow. <laughs> that it takes time, um, that uh, it demands uh, sustained encounters with with communities. Um, this book took me, you know, six years uh, to to research in a, in, in a, around a set of ideas that I've had with me for two decades. Um, ethnography is a is a slow moving um, method, uh, and it really it demands that kind of slowness in order to, um, I think, uh, both uh, in an accurate and fair way represent the communities um, that that we write about as ethnographers, but also also do do so in a in a way that actively involves those those communities uh, in the course of the work. So for me, what did that mean? Uh, is is uh, you know if after I'd interviewed or taken part in a public forum and and where those those interviews and and notes um, became case studies in in the book, I, I shared all of that material with the people um, I worked with and communicated with uh, in the course of of my research and actively solicited uh, critical and constructive feedback uh, from them. Uh, so that long-term approach is not merely sort of a sustained presence in the community, but an active involvement, an active sort of uh, dialogue. Uh, with that community. And for me, that meant a lot of um, uh, uh, what Stephen Feld calls dialogic editing, uh, and which is sort of that, 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 that a dialogue that persists beyond the interview uh, itself uh, and continues on into sort of the editorial process of the writing. So, um, you know, I do that in order to make sure that um, the attribution I make to people's voices and ideas is as accurate as possible, that I'm representing those voices as accurately as possible, and that the people themselves feel uh, meaningfully implicated in the work. Um, uh, this is not sort of an original contribution to ethnography. I'm not alone in, in, in that kind of uh, approach to ethnographic field work, um, but it is an aspect of ethnography that I have I have tried. Um, uh, hopefully in 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 productive ways and and always sort of in partial or incomplete ways um but but throughout the course of this research and the production of this text um there are nonetheless some features of the book that I think are 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 
if not unique, uh, uh, interesting as, as a work of ethnography insofar as I have also tried to engage a great many voices and a great many contexts. Uh, and that proved to be uh, a challenge uh, in, 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 in writing up this, this text. I think of this text as a collection of stories, as I say in the introduction, but more metaphorically as a kind of quilt. Um, it is a each, each section of each chapter sort of has an autonomous uh, quality to it. It's a collection of, of stories that I've, that I've sewn together um, that I hope, um, uh, you know, in terms of the chapters, but also in, as a whole in the book, uh, come across uh, with, uh, with, with, with meaningful narrative coherence. Um, but the, the sheer number of voices and the sheer number of cases in, in the book was, uh, was quite daunting. But I thought, and I still think uh, meaningful and, and important. If I were to present something that that does attempt to, at least in a partial and initial way, uh, represent a, a community, its concerns, its history, and and cultural output. Can you tell us about the National Union of Afro Swedes? What activities has it engaged in? Yeah, um, the National Union of Afro Swedes, or the uh, Afrosvenska Riksorganisation. Um, uh, is one of several um, groups uh, in Swedish civil society that I that I, I worked very closely uh, with and observed. Um, this group is uh, one of the more more active um, uh, groups uh, insofar as they are. Um, you know, they serve as as a kind of lobbying group politically, or presenting sort of platforms. They they do uh, they do kind of uh, 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 political pedagogy, looking at the ways in which different parties, for example, engage actively or not with issues of anti-racism, or are speaking explicitly about, for example, anti-blackness in Swedish society. So during the elections. Uh, at least during the time I was there, they would they would publish and 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 provide this kind of this kind of uh, you know pedagogical work for 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 Swedish society. Um, they also uh, are the organization that hosted the tours of Gamla Stan or Old Town Stockholm in the footsteps of the transatlantic slave trade. So doing some of that kind of public memorialization uh, work to to illustrate the the deep past. Uh, of 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 Afro-Swedish history uh, in Sweden, um, and uh, you know one of its members, I should say, Kintimbo Sabuni, is also a very public and active uh, you know, figure uh, in 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 Swedish civil society and the political sphere more specifically. So you you hear about this group a lot in part because of some of its more charismatic figures. Um, uh, there, there, but there are many other uh, organizations. For example, in southern Sweden, uh, you have the for, Forum for um, uh, Afro-Svenska Forum for Rättvisa, I think, uh, um, it, it, as it's called, and the the Afro-Swedish Swedish Forum for Justice, um, uh, and that's run by uh, a, a group of uh, of Afro-Swedes and allies in southern Sweden. It has its, its it has its its principal spokesperson, or at least has uh, historically um, uh, Malcolm Momudujalo, who's also a um, a member of Parliament uh, for the for the leftist party, the left party, Vänsterpartiet in 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 Sweden. Um, you have you have groups uh, elsewhere that have a focus on, for example, uh, uh, black and African uh, literature reading groups. Um, uh, you have groups that are, that are focused on representation of of black women in Swedish society that focus, for example, on on on, on black femininity. Um, so civil society um, has uh, grown in its representation of of, of a 
of a black and African presence over the past 10 to 15 years. And you're asking about, uh, you know, the, Afro the Union of Afro-Swedes, the Afro-Svenska Riksorganisation, and I would say that they, they are one of the more prominent organizations, um, but by, by no means the only. Um, and they are sort of, uh, you know, at the vanguard of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a resurgent um, African and Black presence in Swedish civil society, and that's important. I'll end here by because I'm emphasizing civil society because that has historically been uh, a unique way in which Swedish politics works. Uh, it is a representative uh, democracy, and individuals do have you know the right to vote, but a lot of political. Um, work happens through organizations, uh, through trade unions, through political parties, of course, but but also through civil society organizations. These are ways in which people's political perspectives are amplified uh, in, in everyday life. Uh, and so my book does focus quite a bit, especially in the chapter on politics, on the work of, of, of civil society organization. Um, in order to highlight that that aspect of, of, uh, of Swedish politics. How does your book advance our understanding of multiculturalism? Yeah, that's an interesting term uh, or, or, or conversation. Um, one of the uh, theoretical shifts that my book proposes uh, in, in its introductory chapter is that is, is a turn from a discourse of multiculture, mon culture, to a discourse of public culture, and 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 here's what I mean by that. That um, and for reasons that that I've al already sort of covered uh, in the course of this conversation, um, that difference in Sweden, like I said, is statistically bound to ethnic and national difference, uh, and many of the cultural policies that emerge from that kind of statistical worldview um, uh, anchor uh, communities in uh, uh, in a sense of of, of national. Provenance. Uh, so you have organizations that are tied to um, uh, uh, national origin, say a Malian organization or a Senegalese organization, uh, um, and so on and so forth, Ethiopian organization, um, and that people are are bound to these national communities, uh, both statistically but also through the cultural organizations that form around those 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 um, those places of origin, uh, and those those communities, while while important and serving important, doing important work, for example, fostering uh, in many cases homeschool education so that people uh, are are going to school and being able to study uh, uh, their native language in, in school. Uh, there's important the work that that emerges out of that kind of national consciousness, um, but it also precludes um, work that is happening across that across those national boundaries. That is transnational modes of identification, diasporic modes of identification. That I'm not just for example. Example, uh, you know, um, speaking as a Malian person, but also as a, as an African or as a person of African descent in Sweden, uh, and so um, multiculturalism is something that a lot of Afro Swedes and African Swedes are actively working against. That might sound strange, um, but it, it's because it's tied to this cultural policy that tends to segregate people out into these communities of national origin and precludes those kinds of transnational connection. That the work. Uh, the racial project um, of, uh, uh, of 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 a generative uh, African consciousness in in, in Sweden um, is is necessarily going against the grain of a kind of um, uh, normative politics of multiculture, as they would say in 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 Sweden. So, um, 
that's what I would say about what my book is, 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 is how it contributes to multiculturalism. It's asking people to sort of think critically about what that terms mean in the specific case of Sweden as it's, as it is deployed to, to, um, to reify a certain kind of difference in, in Swedish society and preclude conversations about other forms of, of community um, that can't be reduced to nation, ethnicity, or culture. What are some of the most important pieces of art produced by Black persons in Sweden? Can you interpret some of them for us? Yeah, there's so much. Um, uh, but I'll turn to a few works that I think uh, have been especially impactful for me of late. Um, and I'll begin with I'll begin with the person who um, wrote the foreword for the book, Jason Timbuktu Jakite. Timbuktu is a, a artist moniker. Um, he's a he's a hip hop artist. He's a rapper, um, a very famous rapper, and someone who uh, pioneered uh, the the use of Swedish, the Swedish language in rap, in, in the in the late '90s and early 2000s, um, and uh, during my time uh, working on this book, he also wrote a memoir uh, called Endropa Midnight, A Drop of Midnight. It was a memoir written in Swedish uh, for a Swedish audience, became a bestseller in 2016. Uh, it was translated into, into English and is now available as A Drop of Midnight. Uh, it's, a, it's an Amazon published uh, book. Um, and that book um, was also uh, turned into a stage play. Again, first in Swedish uh, for a uh, principally Swedish audience. I think that was 2017 when that happened. Then it was uh, uh, debuted in, in, in Harlem, in New York, uh, on the Harlem stage in English. Um, so you're talking about interpreting a work of art. What I love about this story is it's really the, the story of why why I, as an ethnomusicologist, as a scholar of, as a, as a, as a musical anthropologist, someone who studies uh, culture, society, community through the lens of, of music, um, couldn't write a book just about music. Here we have a musical artist um, who is, uh, you know, through his art, in, in terms of just sort of the hybridity of uh, irreducible hybridity of of hip hop, you know, a visual artist, uh, a poet, uh, and and musician, but uh, who has also written a memoir, who turned that memoir into a stage play. Uh, so this is one really great example about how many forms of art um, are deployed by one and the same person to make different kinds of commentaries on life, society, being, belonging, existence, and, and so forth. Um, you hear the the influence uh you know he's a wordsmith timbuktu so you hear the influence of his hip-hop and his writing um uh you also see see someone who hasn't written a book of before and kind of working with that new medium and kind of exploring its possibilities um uh you see someone who uh sees that that written word as a jumping off point to to other forms of art um like like theater uh, and and like more music because that 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 theater is also a musical theater. So to interpret <laughs> to interpret that work of art um, and it's, in, in in its various forms and iterations uh, required you know that I um, uh, develop a, a a new set of of, of tools <laughs> to to understand and and analyze and interpret. Uh, that work. Uh, I happen to have a, a background in theater growing up in, in in Minneapolis. I also have a background in visual art, um, and I and I and I and I'm a music maker. So, in a sense, 
this multiplicity of artistic forms felt very familiar to me. But as an academic, uh, it has it has forced me to um, you know commune more closely uh, and carefully with uh, interpreters of, of visual art, of dance, of theater, and so on. Um, so that's one work, Andropovinath, A Drop of Midnight, as a book, as a musical production, as a theatrical production. That's that's an interesting artistic space to think about. One other example that I'll, that I'll, that I'll give is the, is the film Mia um, Danvilleva, While We Live, by uh, filmmaker Dani Cuyate. Dani Cuyate is a uh, he's he's born uh, and raised in Burkina Faso. Uh, he uh, trained as a filmmaker in Burkina Faso, and then again uh, further in France. Um, is now living with his uh, with his family uh, in Sweden. He has uh, an Afro-Swedish wife and Afro-Swedish kids, uh, and he uh, he teaches film and theater uh, at a at a local college. And Miran Vilever is uh, his first long film, feature length film. Uh, in a Swedish set in a Swedish context, um, and it is also one of the first films um, uh, to uh, feature. In fact, really the first film to feature a primarily uh, Afro-Swedish cast, uh, written and directed by 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 an African cinematographer. Donny doesn't call himself Afro-Swedish. Um, he identifies predominantly as uh, as a, as an african in the world uh he has a very cosmopolitan uh sense of self uh but he's very explicit about presenting the story uh in in afro-swedish terms and it's about a a mother and her son um uh and their encounters with uh, their life in sweden and their return home and home is complicated for both of them to to the gambia in western africa um and the, you know the film is is uh it's a it's a striking example again of kind of a um, of multiple aesthetic practices coming together. Dani Cuyate uh, is a griot uh, traditionally. That means he's a traditional storyteller uh, and musician uh, in in uh, in Mandi society in West Africa. And you see that storytelling uh, and that musical impulse uh, in in the uh, in the in the film. So I, I tend to call him a cinematic griot. Um, uh, you. Uh, you of course have the in, the intersection of of the visual and the auditory uh, in in the film. He's, uh, he's he makes very careful and, and intentional use of music, um, uh, which which ranges from traditional West African music to hip hop and kind of also the merger of those two spaces and some pretty novel and interesting and, and lovely Afro pop uh, in the course of the film. Um, language uh, is 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 represented in 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 uh, strikingly interesting ways, particularly through the way language is is used uh, in the course of performance and 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 musical expression in the film. But the film is sort of bilingual in its use of uh, of English and Swedish. Um, I'm I'm wandering a bit on that on 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 this topic, but I but it's a beautiful film. And I can't hi more highly recommend it. Um, if your institution, uh, scholarly institution, subscribes to the Canopy streaming um, uh, 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 streaming uh, web presence, uh, what, what do you call those things like Netflix? Uh, Canopy uh, has the film and. Um, I, I really, really strongly recommend um, recommend it as a as a as a uh, as a classroom teaching tool, uh, but also as just a film to enjoy uh, uh, on a personal level. And uh, for those looking for you know a, a really beautiful encounter with uh, Sweden's African diaspora, its history, and its cultural expressions, 
uh, it's it's really quite a stunning representation of those things. Which previous works of academic scholarship on this topic have had the greatest impact on you? Which studies of Swedish social history and the African diaspora in Europe were most impactful on you? Yeah, so I've talked about some of the uh, the 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 work that that informed the the specifically Swedish and Afro Swedish. Um, uh, case studies, but I can pan out a little bit more uh, and and think about um, uh, the Afro-European uh, literature. So, you know, to begin with, I very, very much inspired by the work of people like Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy, Stuart Hall for his his uh, very, very um, beautiful and, and lucid and critical uh, accounts of, of diaspora, but also the recently published, posthumously published memoirs um, uh, of his of his life um, as, uh, you know, on route from Jamaica to, to the United Kingdom and uh, his sort of historical recollection of 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 race, empire, and culture, and politics uh, across um, across the generations of his life. Um, uh, Paul Gilroy for you know the seminal text that ain't no black in the Union Jack, um, the latter chapter of which is the sort of tour de force study of of uh, popular black uh, aesthetics and popular music specifically. Um, which which uh, you know ties together issues of of community issues of uh, musical expression issues of political representation um, and in in that context going back to the 1980s so those are kind of historical rep- reference points in the literature that I found that I find compelling still to this day um, uh, but also uh, the work of people like um, uh, Crystal Marie Flint Fleming uh, or Gloria Wecker. Uh, these are writers that have written about uh, uh, um, uh, whiteness, uh, blackness, Africanness in in French and Dutch contexts, um, uh, and both have written about sort of the, the 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 ongoing sort of struggle or failure of these societies to to uh, actively account for um, their their colonial histories, their their entanglements with the with the, with this with the slave trade. So I found work like that to be particularly also uh, very compelling and important and helpful in in generating some of the more you know broadly contextualized uh, conversations that I'm having in this in this book. Um, I'm thinking of scholars like Tina Kampt, uh, who has written so beautifully about, um, for example. Uh, the the ingathering of of images uh, in 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 uh, black family contexts in the United Kingdom and in Germany uh, as a way of of telling these very intimate stories of an African and black presence uh, in these places and particularly in the German context to tell uh, a story about an Afro-German uh, presence that that is is seldomly spoken of in ways that is quite similar I think to the Swedish case. Um, so uh, uh, and Compt in particular, in the ways that she you know she reads the 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 stories that that photographic albums tell uh, in in these in, in, a, in a very musical way. She th- she th- she she writes about listening to the musicality of these of these of these uh, photographic archives, and I found that to be very inspiring um, uh, uh, in the course of my research. Um, uh, Michelle Wright is someone I I I I attribute sort of the uh, the the title after the colon in in the book, uh, you know, Afro Sweden becoming black in a colorblind country. Um, uh, becoming black is is a book written by Michelle Wright, um, and and in that book, um, Michelle Wright's engagement with 
uh, black feminist work from uh, a variety of diasporic contexts, including Europe, uh, and the kind of dialogic attention she gives, that kind of the 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 um, the intellectual exchanges that she engages in uh, in that book with uh, with uh, particularly black feminist scholars. Um, again, in a variety of contexts that includes uh, Afro-European context was profoundly um, uh, important to me. And then just the idea of of Blackness as as an emerging dynamic, irreducible concept. That's also something that I would, uh, you know, attribute very strongly to uh, my reading in any case of of, uh, Michelle Wright's work. Uh, So that's, you know, that's a a survey of work if we're kind of panning out from some of the the authors that that have uh, inspired my work uh, in a Swedish context to those that have informed the work in a more broadly uh, Afro-European context, um, it would certainly include include those names. What forms of racism have Black persons in Sweden experienced? Um, what forms of racism? Um, racism of, of really all kinds. Uh, uh, the Brotsförebyggande uh, Rådets, the the a non-governmental agency that uh, works to collect uh, statistics on hate crimes in Sweden. It's non-governmental, so they actually take seriously things like Afrophobic hate crime and uh, Islamophobic hate crime and anti-Semitic hate crime, etc. Um, uh, uh, they um, they provide very very useful statistical information on on forms of anti-black violence, uh, for example, um, uh, as well as more everyday as well as more everyday accounts of of of, of insult and, and injury, um, which are also part of of the kind of uh, range of of racism that that Afro Swedes encounter um, the kind of casual um, encounters with with uh, derogatory terms like the N word. Um, the more systemic forms of racism that uh, make it more difficult, for example, to um, uh, get a job um, in the labor market um, or to uh, or to get an apartment in, in certain parts of, of, of the city or to um, or to uh, advance uh, uh, one's one's career in the academy. I, I know a number of, of, of black academics who are in uh, a certain kind of academic purgatory because there's not a great there's not there's not there's not a uh, there's not a real outlet for the the work they're doing. There's nothing like black studies in Sweden, uh, and so um, and then of course black scholars facing uh, certain forms of uh, you know in, you know intrinsic or, or or explicit forms of racism within within their professional environments uh, as as well. So it's it it runs the gamut of the everyday of the systemic of the insult of the injury. Um, that have come to define the range of things that we think of as, as, as racism in the world today. How have the extreme right wing and neo-Nazi groups in Sweden perceived Black persons in Sweden? What forms of xenophobia and prejudice have been experienced? Yeah, so for people uh, who came of age in the, in the 80s and 90s, um, they have pretty harrowing stories of 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 their encounters with um with uh with with violent forms of neo neo nazi social organization skinheads um uh, i had a number of conversations with people um uh of of that of that generation um who talked about you know going to school but but taking the long way home uh so as to avoid certain parts of of their journey home that would intersect with uh with with skinhead gangs um 
I tell a story in in chapter three uh, of my uh, sort of walking uh, remembrance with uh, with an Afro-Swedish uh, uh, artist, uh, Stevie Niadumensa, uh, who grew up in a town called Blackaberry, um, western suburb of Stockholm. And uh, I was admiring the um, the the greenery, the the the, the green space of the, of the city, and just how uh, how intentional um, uh, the Stockholm urban planning seemed to be in terms of its integration of green space with with the, the built space of the city. Uh, and here I am admiring that, and he tells me, "Hold up, you know, this is actually where you what, that what you're looking at right now, underneath that bridge or beyond the bridge, there is where the skinheads would hang out." And I, you know, this is the place I couldn't go, wouldn't go. Um, so those were those were um, you know moments when I uh, I was humbled, checked, had to check my positionality, um, and uh, and I learned a lot. Um, uh, I learned to uh, I learned about the the ways in which what i saw was not an experience was was often far afield uh, from the experiences and histories of, of my interlocutors um i'm sorry the question to can you repeat the question because i think i got off on a slightly um, sure um how have extreme right wing and neo-nazi groups in sweden perceived black persons in sweden right. what forms of prejudice and xenophobia have been experienced yeah, so that yeah, so I was I'm talking about that history, and this is you know the 80s and 90s when when there is a more uh, militant public presence of, of skinhead groups, and so a lot of people I, I talked to who have again that generational history told me these kinds of stories from that moment. Um, there, it was not by any means by any means new to that moment. Sort of uh, you know um, racial forms of racial prejudice prejudice that one would associate with um, Nazism. Um, go back to uh, obviously the the interwar war and post-war period and the war being World War II. Um, but the 90s were a particularly rough rough patch uh, for for non-white people and their encounter with with far-right extremism. Um, and for people, uh, young adults and 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 those generationally older uh, in the present, um, what we've seen over the past 12 years, is the normalization of far-right extremist groups in uh, mainstream Swedish politics. So a group, uh, a political organization called the Sweden Democrats that has its own roots and history in uh, uh, neo-Nazi uh, political organization, members of whom uh, have identified uh, in the past as as skinheads uh, and listen to music that celebrates a, a, a kind of white nationalist narrative. Um, this is uh, it, this is detailed in a in a very provocative but but excellent book by Benjamin Teitelbaum uh, called Lions of the North about um, the the sort of soundscape and political culture and social life of, of far right uh, groups in Sweden. Um, the Sweden Democrats entered into the Swedish Parliament, crossing the the four percent threshold for a part political party to have political representation uh, in the Swedish political system in in 2010, uh, and their political representation has more or less doubled in every uh, four year election cycle since then. And now they have approximately 20.5 percent, at least as the last election uh, gave them 20.5 percent of the of the national vote, and that made them uh, a kingmaker uh, in the um, in the organization of a of, of a new Swedish government moving beyond the center left uh, government, which included a coalition of the uh, Social Democrats, the Center Party, and the in the um, and the Environmental Party, the Green Party, Milieu Partiet, 
Um, they lost the election by a very narrow margin uh, and a uh, and a right wing government, uh, including the uh, socially, uh, the economically conservative uh, moderates, the socially conservative Christian Democrats, uh, and the kind of um, uh, social libertarian party, Liberalna, uh, have formed a minority government. They altogether occupy about 30% of the vote that is has 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 been allowed to uh, to govern um with the the with the um approval of the Sweden Democrats they're not in the government but they essentially control much of the policy uh and the political platform of of this current government and that means the normalization of 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 far right um policies has uh has has entered the governing structures of of Swedish society itself to determine policy that is something that is um that is quite novel um and for many people frightening to be perfectly honest um uh and so you know i'm telling a story of uh, of generations of people who grew up uh you know walking uh, great distances to get home because of their fear of skinheads and now you have a generation of people who are growing up in a sweden in which the, the, the those far right ideologies have now uh entered the um the sphere of the political and are determining policy uh and that is um that is a, a a chapter yet to be written. Um, what that will, uh, what that will deliver in in terms of politics and how um, Sweden's um, diverse society will respond um, to this shift in 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 politics in the present. How was the Black Lives Matter protest perceived in Sweden? What were the ramifications and reverberations? Did the protests in support of George Floyd resonate? with Black Swedes' experiences. Can you comment on the relationship between Black persons in Sweden and Sweden's police? Yeah, Black Lives Matter. I, I end the book with the story um, about uh, a Black Lives Matter Sweden uh, protest in, in Stockholm. And it was a, it was a um, you know, during the COVID pan, uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, so it was a hybrid uh, event. Um, there were people on the ground in Stockholm and, and a lot of people, tens of thousands of people, uh, at least online in solidarity uh, with the protest. Um, and uh, what was very clear about this particular protest is that Afro-Swedes and their allies uh, in Sweden uh, were very keen to uh, point out the um, the connections between uh, the anti-Black violence in the United States, that that um, in, in this specific case resulted in the death of George Floyd, and forms of anti-Black racism and 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 and, and additionally anti-Black violence that that are faced by by people of African descent in Sweden, um, uh, forms of police surveillance um, would be included in the, in that litany. Um, uh, 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 security guards in in the subways um, uh, targeting. Uh, uh, People of color and black people, specifically in the subways, uh, these are stories that were shared during that during that event. The ways in which the at least at that time the uh, mortality rates um, of of East Africans and Somali Swedes in particular was was much higher uh, than than the than the average, and so there was a sort of there there were some active questions about. Uh, why? Um, what what sorts of intersections between race and class, for example, would help us explain um, why Black people seem to be more susceptible, more more vulnerable to um, uh, COVID nineteen mortality? Um, so 
this was 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 a, a sort of tragic opportunity uh, for the diaspora to to um, make these kinds of connections, to show solidarity with um, with Black America specifically, uh, but also to to tell stories um, that that brought that brought the African and Black community uh, to light um, in 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 Sweden and the world around the you know, under the rubric of Black Lives Matter, and to tell stories that connect um, African and Black community in Sweden to the broader uh, African and Black diaspora. What is the concept of melanforskap, or in-betweenness? How does it play out in Black Swedish life experience? Melanforskap, uh, it means uh, in-betweenness. Um, and melanforskap, uh, it is... Uh, I asked this question to to my friend Jason Jakite, uh, uh, and you know I asked him, "Is this a, an identity or is it a condition?" And he, he you know he describes Menachem as a condition, and it's a condition of 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 uh, of an experience of being uh, neither this nor that, of being of being in between. Um, it can refer specifically to people, for example, um, whose parents or maybe a parent um, hails from a country outside of Sweden. Um, and uh, not feeling really that you are fully of that place or come from that place, that that is, you know, a home or a homeland for you, um, but also living in a society that doesn't treat you as a, as a, as a native son, um, uh, that doesn't treat you as, as a member uh, in, in, in a full or complete way. Where do you really come from, that question? So to feel sort of doubly alienated uh, from both the paternal heritage um, and, uh, and, 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 and the place you have, have grown up in and called home all your, all, all your life. So Melanfirskopit is a way of, of speaking to that, that condition of, of feeling um, uh, alienated uh, and in between uh, cultures and histories and societies, um, even as one lives uh, in, 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 in one of those places among people who uh, hail from perhaps that, that other place. Uh, so that, that has been a potent term to think about um, the existential conditions of, of, of a lot of Swedes, um, uh, an increasingly large number of Swedes who have these, these complex heritages. Um, and it is uh, one of these, you know, generative and I think useful terms um, alongside other more communitarian terms like Afrostansk um, that helps us uh, think in more pointed and specific and interpretively um, sophisticated ways about how people are experiencing um, cultural, racial, ethnic difference uh, in Sweden today. What does your book teach us about language and linguistics? Language and linguistics. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on words, uh, on language, uh, and the words of language. Um, and I call it articulating Afro-Sweden. And I mean I mean that in two ways, both the ways in which people articulate or give voice to um, their sense of Blackness and Africanness in Sweden today and the kinds of, of words that that, that um, voicing has produced, particularly uh, in the past you know, 10 to, to 15 years. Um, that has made terms like Afro, Afro-Svensk and Afrikan-Svensk uh, more, more mainstream, um, but also articulating in the sense, to go back to Melan that's that in-betweenness, in, in that articulation sort of in the way that Stuart Hall talks about is, is bringing together, articulating, joining. And so when I, when I think about um, Afro-Svensk, uh, you know, in a sort of 
in a in a in a hat tip to W. E. B. Du Bois, who gave us this term double consciousness. I think about an articulated consciousness. What does it mean to to be not only that to what does it mean to go beyond sort of a sense of being neither this nor that to to a sense of being both this and that? Um, and it, it seems to me that that's that's some of the work that terms like Afro-Sans and Afrikaans-Fansk are doing is to say I am both uh, a person of African descent and and a Swede um, at the same time. And um, uh, so that's that these are linguistic interventions um, uh, that that I think uh, have have made have made the work of of thinking about difference, thinking about race, thinking about racism. Uh, more sophisticated, more interesting, more more targeted, and uh, in, in in our ability to speak meaningfully about people's experiences, and so that's and you know that's coming from the communities themselves. That is and that is I, that's in the section called uh, Renaissance because that, that that linguistic work is a is a vital act of of of, of cultural production. Uh, they're giving us, they're gifting us new words uh, that, that that allow our minds to think about. Uh, the human condition in, in 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 a in a more variegated way, and I think that's that's profoundly valuable. What aspects of Black experience in Sweden are unique to Sweden vis-a-vis other European countries? What aspects of Afro-Swedish history and sociology are similar and different vis-a-vis Afro-German experiences? What is similar and different about Black experience in Sweden vis-a-vis Finland, Denmark, and Norway, or Iceland? Can you comment on what features of the story that you tell in this monograph are unique to Sweden or perhaps might be shared elsewhere in Northern Europe? Yeah, so um, similar, it kind of it kind of depends on on what we're talking about. So uh, Sweden is very similar to countries like uh, like France um, uh, or, or or the Netherlands for reasons I spoke to before, and in, in terms of the effort to mem- to remember, uh, to memorialize, to acknowledge uh, uh, histories of, of 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 involvement in the transatlantic slave trade and 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 uh, and colonialism. Uh, Sweden's Sweden's participation in the in the colonization of Africa was marginal to be sure, but not absent. Uh, and so Sweden shares with other countries in Europe um, uh, a struggle uh, with uh, uh, with uh, a, a more a full and meaningful acknowledgement of those of those histories. It shares with countries like Britain and France uh, a very sizable um, uh, non-white uh, minority public, uh, and 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 it shares with these countries also, especially France, uh, the uh, kind of uh, radical segregation of those populations. And in, in in French, you talk about the banlieue, or, or the suburb, is is a, is a highly segregated kind of quote unquote ghetto. Uh, in Sweden, the far route, uh, also meaning su- suburb, is a is a similarly stigmatized uh, region uh, in the popular imagination of of um, predominantly working class and non-white people. Um, and so uh, in there, there are meaningful ways in which Sweden intersects with different countries uh, in, in Europe and their experiences with blackness and non-whiteness and, and, and uh, you know, white supremacy uh, in ways that foreground, say, segregation or foreground uh, the memorialization of history with Germany. Um, uh, the, you, you have, you know, a country that that unlike, say, um, uh, France and Portugal and, 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 and Great Britain uh, and Spain, uh, does not have an obvious uh, history of involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, and that that is something that that Germany shares, again, in sort of the public 
imagination of of Sweden's non-involvement. Uh, actually, Sweden did you know own an island in the Caribbean that it got from France in Saint Bar Bar Bartholomew. Um, uh, it was uh, you know uh, active in its uh, trans uh, tra transaction and and uh, and ownership of African slaves. Um, Sweden's involvement is 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 deep and important. Um, Germany too uh, is is being part of sort of a conglomerate uh, European presence in, in in that time has has is is not was not immune from that from that um, or or absent from involvement in the in the economy that uh, the transatlantic slave trade built. So these are also countries that are peripheral to the transatlantic slave trade and thus peripheral to um, diasporic imaginaries that foreground. Um, uh, enslavement in the transatlantic slave trade is kind of focal to um, diasporic industries. Um, so, for example, ideas about the Black Atlantic. This is, you know, the famous concept that that generated by Paul Gilroy. They kind of hit more obliquely uh, in places like Germany and Sweden because there isn't that kind of that robust uh, uh, historical discussion of involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. So, um, but also Germany, uh, you know, a very fairly sizable post World War II African American military presence or American military presence among which, within which one finds an, uh, African American soldiers, and they are part, and their generational um, heritage has has left uh, an Afro Deutsch imprint uh, that is that is uh, has an African American lineage, and um, uh, there there are uh, you know some folks that come out of that uh, African American military uh, space that made their way to Denmark, that made their way to Sweden. Uh, so there's a kind of history that 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 joins uh, Black America with Germany and in Scandinavia through that African American uh, pathway. Um, so you know depending on the kind of Point of orientation: Are we talking about relationship to the to the transatlantic slave trade, or to colonialism, or to uh, or to uh, you know urban planning and segregation? Sweden interfaces with all these places in in, in various ways, uh, and uh, it really is sort of an account of of Afro Swedish history and culture requires um, uh, a fairly um, uh, uh, a serious interrogation of its of its um, connections with 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 Black Europe. I will say that my book and its focus on Afro Sweden um, can be said to not do that work as 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 uh, as sort of robustly as it might. But I will point to uh, the work of of scholars like a name I brought up before, Michael McKeekrain, who is very much invested uh, in the study of of uh, of blackness and people of African descent in in Europe, and makes these connections quite explicit in his work. And he's very well cited in the in the text. Can you comment on the musical expression of Afro Swedes? Who are the most important musical artists? What are some of the most noteworthy songs? Yeah, um, it goes you know it goes back quite quite deeply, and I, I I guess I'll focus on the contemporary work because that's what's featured mainly in the book. But you have prominent uh, another African American uh, lineage that's that's prominently represented. And in, in Afro Swedish history are, are jazz musicians, uh, people like Don Cherry. Um, uh... Uh, in the 1960s, uh, Don Cherry's children are names that we might recognize: Nene Cherry and Eagle Eye Cherry, um, uh, who have you know made names for themselves in 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 uh, in uh, R&B and um, and hip hop and and uh, 
and and rock uh, in those cases. Um, uh, so there is a uh, there's a presence in, in in jazz. There's a presence in um, in the pop music of the 80s and 90s. Um, but but the contemporary work that I I addressed, uh, I'm thinking of artists like I've named Sinabusi, uh, Timbuktu, the hip hop artist. Um, I would add well uh, as someone who has been described to me as the Kendrick Lamar uh, of Sweden, and that's Eric Lundin. Uh, so if you're a fan of Kendrick Lamar, uh, Eric Lundin is is a is a really truly artful wordsmith, um, hip hop artist, uh, whose uh, what track that I would recommend is Swedi. Uh, and Swedi is a, is a term derived from Arabic that is used as a kind of pejorative term for, uh, you know, um, uh, people of color in, in, in the suburbs who are behaving too Swedish. Uh, and uh, he gets described as Swedish going back home to the Gambian by an uncle he visits. Uh, and, and he, he, you know, he sees that as a kind of uh, not a badge of honor, but a, but a, but a kind of curse um, uh, on his identity. But, you know, a lot of his work kind of wrestles with the melanthoskopets of, of, of what does it mean to be um, to be Swedish and to be black? What does it mean to have grown up in these segregated suburbs, uh, alienated from mainstream Swedish society, and yet, uh, you know, to 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 live and die for the soccer team? Uh, it's um, it, it's really kind of wonderful work. Um, that's Eric Lundin. Um, I'm thinking of. Uh, a Somali Swedish artist like Sherry, C H E R R I E, um, who writes really uh, lovingly, lovingly about her uh, Somali Swedish identity and about her uh, her home her hometown. I believe she has uh, a track called One Six Three, which is which is the zip code of of the of the the suburb she grew up in outside of I believe Stockholm. Um, uh, so Sherry is an artist I would recommend. Eric Lundin. Uh, to get a the, the, to get a flavor for um, uh, contemporary Swedish uh, uh, Swedish pop music R and B soul um, and and hip hop. How did you locate your sources? What obstacles did you encounter and overcome in conducting this research? Um, how did I locate my sources? I mean, in terms of the the interviews, like I said uh, at the outset of our conversation, um, I there was a, there were a number of public forums uh, of various kinds, and so uh, I, I got in contact with people uh, initially based on the the the, the folks who were uh, presenting themselves as as uh, public intellectuals uh, in in the public sphere and kind of following up with them and doing some snowball sampling to 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 um, to deepen you know my my contact with the community, um, with people who are willing to talk with me and interested in talking with me. Um, the, the, the sources uh, in Afro uh, scholarship that pertain to sort of Swedish society and Afro-Swedish scholarship. Um, I also, you know, came into contact with a number of scholars who were very helpful uh, in, in their, their outreach to me um, and, and, and work with me. People like, you know, Michael Barrett at the Ethnographic Museum, uh, people like Liana Sawyer, who I had known from, uh, you know, uh, my, my sort of previous life in Sweden in the early 2000s, people like Michael McKeekrain that I came to know in the course of my, uh, of my, my research. Um, uh, these, these people not only shared their intellect and insight with me, um, but also, you know, uh, expanded my knowledge of the relevant literature. Um, and uh, and uh, and and put me in contact with 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 that. So um, again, sort of like the the slowness of ethnography, the the scholarly uh, foundation and structure of ethnographic work is also a slow pro- process of of in gathering material. Um, but but often that occurs through conversation uh, with people who uh, who become sort of you know mentors uh, and 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 in some cases friends uh, in their in their. Um, uh, uh, 
collaborative, you know, work uh, to to open up fields of knowledge uh, for for research projects like mine. As we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you working on next as your current project? Can you tell us what you're working on now? Yes. Um, I, I mentioned the film Miran Vilever by the uh, the cinematic griot Dani Cuyate. Um, in my encounters with with Dani, which which uh, a person whose work I knew actually going way back to my undergraduate years studying African studies at uh, Carleton College in Minnesota, um, under the mentorship of of uh, Sharif Keita. Um, I've known about this person's work for 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 two decades, and uh, and I encountered this this filmmaker in in Uppsala during during my um, during the research for this book, uh, and obviously wrote uh, at length about about the film Made on Vilever While We Live, uh, in in the book. But in my encounters with Donny, I realized that there was more to tell, um, and that uh, not only that, but Donny is um, an extraordinarily um, gifted speaker. Um, he is, uh, you know, as, as griots are sometimes reputed to be a master of the word. And so our interviews are among the, the richest, uh, uh, and most thought provoking, uh, instances of dialogue that I have encountered in my life. Uh, and you know, that's, that's not hyperbole. Um, I want to write a book, uh, with Donnie, that brings some of that verbal insight around topics of identity, around topics of um, of uh, family life, around topics of uh, um, uh, uh, cultural roots and 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 uh, and uh, historical um, becoming in the world. Um, around topics of cosmopolitanism, it runs the, the gamut of topics, and in each in each instance, uh, Donnie has something profound to say. <laughs> and so the the next book is, I, I believe, going to be a, a co written uh, text that is right at, the, right at the intersection of an autobiography and a biography uh, that brings Donnie's worldview, his aesthetic worldview, his uh, his sense of of identity, his sense of history, his sense of the cinematic craft. Um, brings that to the page um, in ways that I hope do justice to the conversations we're having. Uh, and so that's, you know, we're, we're, we're currently, uh, you know, in, engaged in periodic uh, long form oral histories and, and interviews. Uh, we've done maybe eight of them uh, at this point, uh, and there, there are more conversations to, to have, but um, uh, I, I have begun to present some of that work and and look forward to over the next year and a half, two years, writing it up as a as a as a third volume. I wish you the best with that. It sounds amazing. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been honored and blessed to be in dialogue today with Dr. Ryan Thomas Skinner. He is an associate professor in the School of Music and the Department of African American and African studies at Ohio State University. We have been discussing his new book, Afro-Sweden, Becoming Black in a Colorblind Country, published in Minneapolis by University of Minnesota Press, 2022. Thank you.